Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. A Wisconsin State Senate committee has subpoenaed Madison election records as part of an ongoing probe into the 2020 presidential election. Issued today by the State Senate's Committee on Elections, Election Process Reform, and Ethics, uh, it calls for the city of Madison to turn over all absentee ballots for an election that happened over a year ago. It also requests records related to testing on the city's electronic voting machines. The subpoena is signed from three GOP legislators, Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu, uh, Senate President Chris Kapenga, and Committee Chair Senate uh, Kathleen Bernier. The senators point to the city of Madison's clerk declining to hand over physical access to the records. They cite a Legislative Audit Bureau report that says only the city of Madison refused access to ballot certificates. Today, Governor Tony Earle announced that Wisconsin will join a national prevention initiative to reduce opioid overdoses. The state will join six others in the Bloomberg Opioids Overdose Prevention Initiative. This comes along with an extra $10 million slated to go directly to combating the opioid epidemic. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that Wisconsin had 1,531 drug overdose deaths between March 2020 and March 2021. That's part of the 96,000 Americans nationwide estimated to have died of drug overdose deaths during the same period. This initiative comes in addition to other state-funded moves like money for community-level support and a pilot hub-and-spoke model of opioid treatment. Today's date marks four years since former Governor Scott Walker signed a deal with multinational tech giant Foxconn. That deal promised 13,000 jobs and an enormous LCD screen manufacturing factory in the village of Mount Pleasant in exchange for billions in tax subsidies. Over the past four years, the LCD factory has not materialized, though Foxconn has built a geodesic dome they characterize as a data center. The 13,000 jobs have also not materialized. Last year, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that Foxconn had only hired uh, 281 people eligible for state tax credits and had made only $300 million in capital expenditures. The deal has since been renegotiated by current Governor Tony Evers. Local media outlet Tone Madison is shifting its editorial model and becoming a worker-owned cooperative. The online outlet covering arts and culture and known for its strong points of view was founded in 2014. Yesterday, the outlet announced the change online, saying they hope to, quote, Provide better and more stable opportunities for journalists in Madison and recruit a staff and freelance pool that is more representative of our community, unquote. COVID-19 in Wisconsin is ticking up again. Yesterday, the State Department of Health Services reported 3,229 COVID-19 cases, the highest number of daily confirmed cases in over a month. That comes as the COVID-19 vaccine is now available for children age 5 through 11. Public Health Madison and Dane County has opened a facility at the Alliant Energy Center to provide pediatric doses. As of yesterday, that facility is able to provide 400 <coughs> pediatric doses a day. You can make an appointment online at publichealthmdc.com vax. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Earlier today, a group of demonstrators held a protest outside U.S. Senator Ron Johnson's local office. Our reporter Greg Jaboski has more. Late this morning, around a dozen people gathered near the local Madison office of U.S. Senator Ron Johnson to demand that he and his Senate colleagues not only pass but expand the social welfare provisions of President Joe Biden's so-called Build Back Better legislation. Although a bipartisan infrastructure bill was recently passed in Washington, funding for programs that would directly help low-income and working people are still held up and are opposed by some Democrats and universally opposed by Republicans, such as Senator Johnson. 
Johnson. The action near Johnson's office was part of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign, Moral Witness Wednesday, Economic Investment for the People Initiative, which is being held today at state capitals across the country. The Poor People's Campaign, initiated by the Reverend William Barber of North Carolina, argues that the bill is absolutely necessary for improving the lives of 140 million across the country. Reverend R.A. Douglas, tri-chair of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign and pastor of First Christian Church of Janesville, describes the campaign. The Poor People's Campaign is a moral fusion movement that crosses historic lines of division, such as race, geography, ethnicity, and generations, to create, as Reverend Dr. King said, a strength that is compelling that the government cannot elude our demands. Across the country, we are mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating the 140 million poor and low-income people and people of conscience to build power because we know that we are on the right side of history. Jason Ribeiro is a member of RISE, which organizes for food, housing, and economic security for students, and is a member of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. He is UW-Madison Jr. studying biology and psychology and describes the economic hardships he faces as a student from a low-income background. Even with a full-ride scholarship for my tuition, I have faced food insecurity, housing insecurity, and even had to drop out of school for a semester because I couldn't make ends meet. Going into my second semester of sophomore year, I lost my seasonal job, and by this point, I had already signed a lease here in Madison. Shortly after, they took away my EBT and healthcare because I had been earning too much at my seasonal job. This made things especially difficult since I now only had my Pell Grant to rely on to help with living expenses, books, and everything besides tuition. Unfortunately, they only gave me $2,000 per semester because they determined that my family's contribution was $6,000 per semester. Um, there was no way they could give me $6,000. No they were barely getting by themselves. They didn't have $6,000 themselves. Ribeiro describes what he thinks is needed. Tuition should be free for all people, and we should support right. students to be yeah. able to focus on their classes yes. while they are in school. Yeah. Free tuition. We literally saw it was possible and saw that it could be added into the budget. Now, many of the supports for students have been removed from the Build Back Better bill, including significantly reducing the original expansion of the Pell Grant that Same. I and other students depend on. You need a degree to earn a livable wage now, and but besides that, you know, we need people to do these jobs. We need engineers, we need teachers, nurses, and psychiatrists yes, like I plan Ribeiro is from an immigrant family and also decries the removal of immigration reform measures from the proposed legislation. I also want to talk today about the immigration provisions that are in this bill. Like the funding for higher education, the proposals have been shrunken and beaten back over and over again. My mom has a green card now, but growing up, she and some of my other family members were undocumented. I had and still have to watch them struggle between jobs and not being able to live the life they want, and deserve to live, actually. Growing up, my mom had no choice but to work 11 hours a day. My siblings and I wouldn't see anyone after school. Do you know how that kind of overwork hurts children and families? In the Poor People's Campaign, we are demanding full citizenship immediately for all 11 million undocumented people. Yeah. Pamelina Williams is a student in Milwaukee Area Technical College and a member of RISE in the African American Roundtable. Black students owe an average of 25,000 more in loan debt. And coming from families where you have to choose who gets to go to college, settle for college debt years after graduation, or simply settle for a less expensive college, we have been denied the equal opportunity for education that our ancestors diligently fought for. Yes. Things like funding for historically black universities and minority service institutions were taken out of the bill back then. Which is ironic because black people were a foundational element in the success of this president and yeah, right, his right. vice president. That's yeah. right. Talk about it. HBCU. Kevin Solomon, a member of the coordinating committee of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign, listed some positive provisions of the current proposed Build Back Better legislation. Some of the things that are important, first of all, that it gives the government the ability to control and negotiate drug prices. That's huge for working families. The expanding Medicaid will help serve millions of people across this country and the state. Family child tax credit is really important for giving working class people a break ensuring that children have a chance to grow up. That was Kevin Solomon of the Wisconsin Poor People's Campaign. Meanwhile, Republican U.S. Senator Ron Johnson was here in Madison today, not at the protest at his office, but instead in a rare appearance at the State House, according to Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Politics and State House reporter Patrick Marley, who reported on Twitter that Johnson met with Speaker Robin Voss and other party luminaries where, in Marley's words, Johnson is talking to Republicans as he makes up his mind on whether to run for a third term for U.S. Senate in 2022. Johnson and state Republicans were closed-lipped on the nature of the meeting. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jaboski.
Last night, the city of Madison embarked on what is likely to be a full week of budget negotiations. It's a chance to decide the city's priorities for the next year. And as News Director Shali Pittman reports, deciding where to appropriate money can be a difficult process. Call to order the Common Council meeting of Tuesday, November 9th, 2021, and I'll ask the clerk to call the roll. Madison Alders heard hours of testimony from the public during the Common Council's initial night of budget decisions. A main issue of concern in the capital budget a controversial amendment over whether to hold up funds for bus rapid transit. WORT reported on that issue last night. A group of alders led by Council President Abbas maintained that more council discretion over a redesign of the bus route network throughout the city is needed before funds to plan bus rapid transit are released. Meanwhile, Mayor Rhodes-Conway, for whom transportation planning is a key issue, argues that the council already has discretion over both projects and that pulling funding to plan bus rapid transit at this stage could jeopardize the entire project. During the more than six-hour meeting last night, the council approved a motion to adopt the capital budget. Now they're working through 15 proposed amendments to that budget, one by one. When they recessed at midnight last night, only four of those amendments had been decided. Alders did approve funding for a loan program for accessory dwelling units, which are also called granny flats. They also approved two amendments related to funding for unhoused services. The only amendment to fail last night was a proposal to buy and retrofit an RV for use as a mobile neighborhood center on the north side. Other key issues that received prominent discussion last night funding more assistance for the Madison Police Oversight Board, as well as violence prevention initiatives, and sometimes debates over the rules themselves. Uh, Alder, are you appealing my my ruling as chair? Yes, I do, because I don't know you're saying this motion is not appropriate. I want to get opinion from attorney Hass on that. Alder, you have four other alders in the queue. I had a re- I did a request if it's okay with the body and you're not allowing to ask the body at least if the body say no that's okay you are just saying you're the scene no, no this I, is not I, and I think it's it's not an appropriate motion the council is currently meeting right now picking up where they left off last night they still have yet to start in on the operating budget which itself has 13 proposed amendments to consider one issue in the operating budget to receive copious public comment last night, the Madison Police Department. Along with most city agencies, the Madison Police Department is proposed to receive an increase to their budget this year, an addition of about $1.2 million. That would put the MPD at about 23% of the entire operating budget. Last year, the MPD was funded at $83 million. Some of those testifying spoke to the importance of the police. Others said it didn't need an increase, especially as other community services were cut last year. The budgets also finalized the long-planned annexation of the town of Madison, adding services for the new residents of Madison come fall 2022. The budgets also invest in violence prevention and affordable housing. Both the capital and operating budgets are, of course, online at cityofmadison.com. You can tune in to the council's second night of deliberations right now on the City of Madison's City Channel. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shali Pittman. The time is now 6.20 and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This week, Madison Metropolitan School District leaders held an unusual press conference after fights at Madison East High School resulted in students being pepper sprayed by Madison police officers. 
It's not the only turbulence that Madison East is experiencing these days. Indeed, to keep up requires a full-time reporter paying attention. So for more on the fights, leadership turnover, and ongoing demands by students for updates to sexual assault guidelines, our news director, Shelley Pittman, spoke with Scott Gerard, the education reporter at the Capitol Times. On Monday, the Madison Metropolitan School District and the East High Administration held a press conference to reassure the community about a string of incidents at Madison East High School. Multiple fights at East High School drew more than a dozen Madison police officers that resulted in some students being pepper sprayed. On the line with me now to talk about all of the events happening at East High School lately is Scott Gerard, education reporter for the Capital Times. Thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me, Scott. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with the incident that prompted this uh, press conference earlier this week on Monday at East High. Um, describe to me the best that you're able to what happened and the ensuing statements from the school administration. Sure thing. So, and you know, I want to be very clear about this. I wasn't there to witness any of it. Um, you know, uh, by the time that I was aware of what was going on, the scene had been mostly cleared. And, and so this is all pieced together from, you know, students who saw it, uh, police and school officials, et cetera. And so, but, but from what I've heard from those folks, police initially responded to the school for a report of a fight outside, but didn't find one in the location they expected when they arrived. Around that same time, however, there was an altercation going on inside the school's welcome center, just inside the building. And during that altercation, a fire alarm was pulled. The response to a fire alarm going off is everyone leaves the building. And so you had a crowd of students then outside the building, and this was also occurring right around lunchtime. During the time that students were outside the building, multiple small fights started to break out. And so eventually the fire officials who responded to the fire alarm cleared the building, uh, and many students returned to the building. District officials were uh, very focused on the, quote, 98% of students who were doing the right thing. And again, that's, that's how they put it. Uh, but some at that time remained outside. Uh, and so altercations continued. There were 15 cops at least who responded uh, as these incidents continued occurring. Uh, and during one of those fights, uh, one of the larger ones from the way police described it, uh, that involved at least five or so students, uh, an officer was struck in the face, uh, according to police. And so that officer eventually would use pepper spray, a couple sprays of pepper spray to break up the group. Uh, and later, as there were continued smaller incidents, uh, fights going on, pepper spray, officers used pepper spray again uh, to break those up. So five students then were taken to the hospital for treatment for irritation related to the pepper spray, uh, and another three were treated at the school. Um, and so all of this happened right outside the building. Obviously, there was a lot of attention brought to it. So many police cars, ambulances, and fire personnel responding. So the school and the police department decided to hold a press conference that afternoon, which is not a regular occurrence uh, after incidents happen at school. So there at the press conference, uh, the superintendent, Carlton Jenkins, and police chief Sean Barnes both spoke about the importance of the community uh, helping to work with kids on how to process trauma and deal with emotions and things like that. They both said that what happened Monday was a spillover incident of something that had actually started over the weekend out in the community. And so the school officials have made that point earlier this year in response to other fights as well, that what's happening on school grounds is often sort of following what happens outside of school hours. School officials have also noted that students are dealing with a lot uh, coming back from the pandemic, both because of the trauma that it caused, as well as the time not in a full school building with their peers surrounding them. So th those have been a lot of the points that school officials have made uh, throughout the year, and, and those continued on Monday. So this is definitely something that is right now in the local consciousness. That's why we're having you on uh, last night at the uh, Madison budget meeting during public comment. Numerous uh, folks were talking about the police budget and um, also bringing up this most recent incident. What have you been hearing from parents and students about their safety concerns in the past two days? 
Yeah, you know, I actually was hearing a lot even before Monday. Some A lot of what I heard was parents and students who just didn't feel safe at school. Um, you know, whether it was fights in classrooms, they were seeing hallways outside the building. Uh, all of it just added up to a general feeling that something was going to happen and they were worried that they themselves or their child could be caught in the middle of it. So I think Monday just really exacerbated that and, and sort of, uh, was a another data point for those people who were already feeling that way. And, and maybe for those who weren't feeling that way, it, it added some stress and, and created that feeling because uh, there's certainly a lot of community concern right now, I would say. And, and some parents have expressed an interest in taking action to help, but uh, sort of a lack of clarity on how to do that and what can help. I've seen uh, talk out there about just being at the school, outside the school during lunch hour. Uh, I've also seen the concerns about what that means for liability and what they people who are just showing up to be present can actually do while they're there and whether that would actually help the school district. And the, the district has said it's bringing more central office staff to the building uh, to help. It's adjusting some schedules to allow for more supervision at certain times of the day. And, and then school officials have also stressed that uh, the most important thing that students need is emotional and mental health support at this time. And it's, it's sort of unclear whether that is enough to satisfy some parents uh, and students who are concerned. You know, yesterday, uh, as the Wisconsin State Journal reported, I think uh, almost a third of the student body called out sick the day after this major incident on Monday. And I think if anything demonstrates the concern in the community, it's, it's that number of students not showing up to school. And at this time, we're recording this uh, mid-afternoon, almost three o'clock. Has there been any follow-up from the administration to students? Is there anything to publicly kind of process these feelings that the administration has proposed? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, never pretend to know everything, but but not that I'm aware of. You know, I know um, back earlier in the year, there were some assemblies on the behavior education plan and things like that that students uh, attended with the former principal. Um, and so, you know, they've discussed some of the issues surrounding it, but I, I don't know of anything currently planned to that end. So this morning or in, in the last 24 hours, there's an email to the East High School community that went out from Superintendent Carlton Jenkins saying that the administration had learned of continued rumors on social media of threats between students. Um, and those were alleged to have been reported through an anonymous tool. So what the heck is Speak Up, Speak Out? Yeah, so it's actually a Wisconsin Department of Justice uh, Office of School Safety tool. So it's, it's a statewide tool. Uh, as a tip line, quote unquote. And uh, so it's a way for people to report threats or tips to administrators, and that can be forwarded on to school officials. And basically, it's a way for students to do that uh, while maintaining their confidentiality. The idea being that it may be ch challenging for some students to in-person share with an administrator or teacher or something about something they've heard. And so this provides an extra layer, though the district certainly also encourages students to uh, report things directly to a trusted adult uh, at school. But this is just another tool to that end. So these fights come at a unique time at Madison East High School. This is the first semester of in-person uh, school for some, um, I think, juniors at this point after uh, being shut down due to the pandemic and having virtual schooling. It also comes after a move last year to end the use of school resource officers in Madison's four high schools, including East and, you know, that campaign was years in the making, but it formally happened last year. And at East in particular, it's seen three principals in just over two years. So high turnover there. Are those things that I know you don't have a crystal ball, but are those factors that uh, could possibly contribute to these incidents? Yes, I, I think absolutely. I think all three of them probably play some role. Uh, and how much weight you give to each of them probably depends on your perspective on some of the decisions that have been made. You know, the, the school resource officer vote, I'll start there because it happened uh, last summer. Uh, it was done uh, amid nationwide reckoning with social justice and uh, following the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so it was a historic vote, but it was done at a time where 
we wouldn't see a full set of students in person at a school building again for more than a year. And so there's really been no way to uh, assess that decision. Now, I will say, you know, there's there's certainly research out there that uh, backs up school board members' assertion that a school resource officer's presence doesn't necessarily improve behavior incidents at a school. But given the timing of that vote and how this fall has started, I think there are uh, groups of parents who feel that that is a contributing factor. Uh, there was one parent who actually showed up to Monday's press conference, and one of her first questions she asked was, why isn't there an officer stationed in the building? And board member Savion Castro uh, sort of explained the district's decision and rationale, and he and Superintendent Jenkins talked about the need to, quote, go deeper with students and understand sort of the roots of behaviors and address those rather than addressing the behaviors. But you certainly, there, there's groups out there that feel that if there were a school resource officer in the school building, uh, these incidents wouldn't be taking place. Uh, you also mentioned the first semester of in-person learning. Uh, yeah, there are so many social things that children learn, right? Uh, just the way they respond to their peers, the way they respond to their own feelings, that they haven't had as much time to work through uh, as they normally would have in, in their adolescence because they've been mostly at home uh, or with peers in other settings that aren't school for the past uh, year and a half. And, and so certainly that is a contributing factor. And then uh, finally, like you said, East has seen three principals in just over two years. And that sort of turnover in a building's leadership uh, is really tough on everyone, I think, not only students, but also the staff and, and their understanding of a uh, building's priorities and their jobs and what they're supposed to do and intervene in and uh, what a building's focus is. And so I think all of uh, that contributes and, and how much is, is really the big question. So you mentioned a leadership change, and I want to dig a little more into that. Two weeks ago, Sean Levy, the East High School principal, stepped down from his role as the principal, and he was new to that position. Now, he is headed to an administrative role as the Director of Secondary Multi-Tiered Support and Scheduling, and Assistant Principal Mickey Smith is now the interim principal. First, could you describe that shift and, and what exactly prompted that? Yeah, unfortunately, I have not had conversations with either of them uh, to, to this point, so that I am not able to speak to sort of the more behind-the-scenes mechanisms of what happened and, and their thoughts on it. But what led to the change, you had uh, rallies and protests and walkouts uh, at the school a couple weeks prior uh, related to sexual violence and sexual misconduct and how the school handled that. Uh, and at those rallies, students had a lot of strong words about uh, then-Principal Levy and his response to a, both a specific allegation of something that occurred uh, at a party that followed the school's homecoming dance and also his general handling of the issue of sexual assault and talking about it with students. And so uh, there was a, a signs that were directed toward him that he should be gone from the school. There were uh, students chanting and yelling for him to leave and, and yelling profanity uh, about him. And so uh, students certainly were not shy at those walkouts about their feelings about Principal Levy, who was new to the job as of this summer. And he came from outside the district. Prior to him, it had been Brendan Kearney, uh, who started as an interim principal and then oversaw the school for uh, the 2020-21 and 2019-20 school years. And so a lot of his time in that role was also during the pandemic. Uh, now you have Mickey Smith, and she has actually been an assistant principal at the school for, I believe, a decade. And so there's at least some more familiarity there than there was with Sean Levy when he entered the school late in the summer uh, during, obviously, as we previously discussed, a really challenging time for schools. Yeah, let's dig into this isn't the only news uh, either at <laughs> East High School. You and I were both at um, those walkouts and protests in mid-October about 
kind of the district's sexual assault reporting guidelines and protocols and also a specific incident that happened at a private residence after East homecoming dance. There's also movement there and the alleged perpetrator was arrested last week. Can you tell me more about that development uh, happening at East? Yes. So as you mentioned, uh, and and this really did prompt a lot of the discourse around Levy and his position there, but there was an incident on October 10th uh, following the homecoming dance where a 17-year-old East High School student allegedly uh, assaulted and choked a victim at a private residence. And and what happened was uh, students that following week told administrators about it and were pretty unhappy that the student, according to them, was still at school uh, to begin that week, the the alleged perpetrator. They were just extremely upset that he was still at school and they had to see him knowing uh, what he had allegedly done. And so there was a lot of conversation about the school's ability to keep him out of school and uh, students wanting to better understand what they're supposed to do when they have an incident to report and what the school uh, is supposed to do in response to incidents. Um, But he has now been arrested on charges for second-degree sexual assault by use of force and strangulation and suffocation. Uh, And so that is the latest there. Okay. And students also launched their own campaign to kind of change district protocol, even things such as allowing the Rape Crisis Center website to be unblocked on district-issued laptops. Have you heard anything more about that campaign? Has the school board taken that up at all um, or considered any changes? Yeah. So, yes, it was actually the the timing uh, of that effort sort of coincided with this incident uh, that happened. And so there were two rallies in in the same week, one that had already was in the process of being planned before the weekend incident. And then the second one that occurred to to support the survivor uh, of that incident. And, And they were joined by students around the district, high school students around the district and around the county. We're pushing for more transparency in the district's response to sexual uh, violence and sexual misconduct. The school board has not spoken publicly in a public meeting about this, and so there, there hasn't been a lot of movement from that standpoint. I do know the Rape Crisis Center has been consulting with the district on these issues. They spoke with school administrators in the follow-up to these protests uh, about some of the protocols. There was a discussion with the the district's Title IX coordinator sort of going over administrators' responsibilities. Um, And I do know the students who were leading the East High School Sexual Assault Awareness Campaign have met with administrators as well. Superintendent Carlton Jenkins met with some of those students to to discuss the issue following the uh, walkouts. Well, I've been on the line with Scott Gerard, education reporter for the Capital Times. Scott, I'm so thankful that you are on this beat to follow all of the nuanced policy changes as well as incidents happening at East High and all of the education news happening in Madison. So thank you so much for talking about this with me today. Thank you for having me on and and spreading the word about what's going on in education in Madison. Excellent. And you can read Scott's reporting online at captimes.com, a new website dissociated from um, the, the State Journal. So congratulations on that change, Scott. Thank you. Everyone should check out the beautiful, beautiful new website. I'm, I'm very happy to have my work there. Excellent. All right. Thanks again. Thank you. The time is now 641 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden, here with my co-host, Rob McClure. Thanks for joining us tonight. And it is time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, if you had a chance to view the sky today, especially to the west and south, you could see that sort of classic onset pattern for an approaching cool season storm with 
passing veils of cirrus in the morning, then kind of weaving together into a full pall of cirrus stratus before eventually being joined by lower, thicker altocumulus and also altostratus that were sliding up from the south around 1 p.m. or so. Those clouds continued to darken the skies from west to east as they thickened further downward in the afternoon. You can see all of that occurring from up above if you have a look at either of the two visible satellite images that we have linked up in the featured graphics section of the WORT weather webpage this evening. That steady moistening of the atmosphere from the upper levels downward was being caused by a deepening storm that's just out to our west, which is producing wide-scale upward motion and uh, leftward turning of the atmosphere, which is helping also to draw Gulf moisture northward up the eastern plains and Mississippi River Valley ahead of it. The lifting is being aided in part by a couple of energized jet stream branches, one that's diving south-southeastward down the western plains, and another which is racing east-southeastward over the Great Lakes. Both of those are helping produce difluents or spreading apart in the upper atmosphere in between, and you can see that to some extent on the water vapor image of the U.S. with pressure fields. That's up at the top of the weather webpage in the featured graphics. Uh, especially if you overlay the mid-level wind fields on that image, which you can do. That makes it quite clear. So anyway, as a result of all this uh, upward inducement at the upper levels of the atmosphere, the surface circulation with the storm is going to lift rapidly northeastward from the southern plains this evening, deepening substantially as it does so, and reach a position somewhere around Eau Claire by tomorrow morning. That will... um, Pardon me while I I struggle with my notes. That will uh, keep southerly winds uh, cranking through here uh, overnight, uh, perhaps even helping bump the thermometer up a degree or two as we get on towards dawn tomorrow. After that, the uh, cold frontal passage will draw the thermometer downward through the day tomorrow, so uh, the temperature curve will be backward, essentially, from the normal course of events over the coming 24 hours or so. The low-level storm circulation will continue to to deepen through Friday as it pirouettes counterclockwise around the western part of Lake Superior. And the follow-on branch, uh, jet branch, from the western plains currently, by that time, drives northeastward and north around its front side. The storm will then begin to occlude and lift out of the area towards James Bay Friday night and Saturday. Precipitation ahead of the cold front uh, later on tonight will be rain. But that should end quickly after the veering wind shift tomorrow morning when the upper jets passage overhead will be drying out much of the mid and upper part of the troposphere. When showery precipitation then resumes overnight tomorrow and on Friday, the atmospheric temperature profile should be cold enough for snow or possibly snow with some mixing of rain in at times during the daytime on Friday. Winds will stay uh, pretty elevated on through Friday into Saturday. A secondary system, much weaker and confined primarily to the mid and upper troposphere, will be passing southeastward over us late Saturday night and early Sunday, probably with a bit more light snow at that time. Not enough to whiten the ground, I don't think, but maybe a little bit. Anyway, back to tonight. The skies will continue to thicken downward, and showers will be passing from southwest to northeast occasionally before they steady up into a period of rain later on. The radar is currently showing most of the precipitation still out in Iowa and Minnesota, west of the Mississippi River, though we may see some showers passing northward through the western parts of the listening area, especially over the coming hour or so. Temperatures will hang steady uh, or perhaps increase up into the lower mid-50s on increasing southeasterly winds, uh, which will come up to 12 to 17 miles per hour and uh, veer more southerly as we get towards morning. Rains early on tomorrow should pass quickly east out of the area, and skies will likely uh, lift, maybe even break a little bit as we get later in the afternoon. Temperatures will uh, slowly ebb downward uh, through the upper and mid-40s tomorrow on westerly winds, which will come up to 15 to 20 miles per hour in the midday and afternoon hours, a bit gusty as well. We'll stay windy and cloudy overnight with uh, low temperature in the low 30s on west to southwest winds up at uh, 10 to 18 miles per hour. We may see a passing snow shower or two uh, in the overnight period. 
A Friday, sky should see a good bit of stratocumulus during the daylight hours, thickening at times for a passing snow shower or two, or perhaps some mixed precipitation during the day. Temperatures will hold in the mid or upper 30s on westerly winds up at 10 to 17 miles per hour. We'll continue to see a fair bit of passing cloud cover overnight and on Saturday with low temperatures around 30 and a high temperature in the mid to upper 30s on Saturday. Winds will slowly diminish as we get later Saturday. We'll likely see uh, a light round of uh, snow overnight uh, going into Sunday with a low temperature in the upper 20s and a high temperature in the mid-30s. That snow should end uh, Sunday morning the way it's looking. The temperature at the station on Bedford Street is currently 49 degrees. The dew point temperature is now up to 40. Winds are out of the southeast at 14 miles per hour, uh, still gusting up above 20 uh, fairly regularly. Uh, Passing clouds, uh, lower clouds beneath about a 5,000-foot overcast ceiling just now, and the barometer's been falling rapidly. It's down to 29.92 inches of mercury. It's now 6.47 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to November 1966, when the university and the police crack down on anti-war demonstrators. The city starts a new effort for a Frank Lloyd Wright auditorium, and a big change comes to Camp Randall. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, November 1966. On Election Day, November 8th, five members of the Anti-War Committee for Direct Action are arrested and their picket signs confiscated for campaigning too close to a polling place, the city county building. Bortai Scudder, Leah Zeldin, and three young men were handing out literature for Scudder's write-in campaign for Congress against U.S. Representative Robert Kastenmeyer. Scudder, who had been arrested at a demonstration at the Truex Air Force Base in October 1965, claims that Kastenmeyer, one of the most dovish members of Congress, is as bad on the war as his GOP challenger, Westside Alder William Bradford Smith. The Students for a Democratic Society and the Committee to End the War in Vietnam both chip in for their legal bills. Also on Election Day, city voters approve a $26.5 million bond issue to fund a building program to accommodate the 6,000 new pupils expected to enter the school system over the next five years, including a new high school on the Far East Side, 12 new elementary schools, five new junior highs, and numerous additions. The two-to-one approval margin is down substantially from the three-to-one margin for a similar referendum in 1962. And the fallout from the disruptive heckling by Zeldin and other members of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam of Senator Edward Kennedy at the Stock Pavilion in late October continues to mount. Chancellor Robin Fleming warns that the policy of the committee to try to prevent any federal official from speaking on campus threatens free speech at the university. People do not accept harassing a speaker so he cannot speak, he tells the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union. This, more than anything, will bring action down upon us. Some of that action is coming from inside the university's own house. On the 16th, 
the powerful University Committee recommends a new rule stating that those attending a program sponsored by a campus group, quote, have the duty not to obstruct it, and the university has the obligation to protect the right to listen and participate. If the full faculty adopts the rule in December, students could be disciplined for preventing a speaker from continuing. On November 7th, 10 years and four months after former Mayor Ivan Nestigan and Frank Lloyd Wright signed a contract for the world-famous architect to design the Monona Terrace Auditorium and Convention Center at Law Park, and four and a half years after city voters killed the project by referendum, Mayor Otto Feske and architect William Wesley Peters signed a contract for the Frank Lloyd Wright Foundation to prepare a master plan, splitting the facility between Law Park and Olin Park. The so-called Monona Basin Plan is to include an auditorium for up to 2,500, exhibition and banquet space for up to 3,000, a small theater, recital hall, and art gallery of 10,000 square feet. But three weeks later, longtime terrace foe Carol Metzner files another lawsuit, claiming that the city's abuse of discretion in approving the contract invalidates the agreement and places city officials at personal risk for over $100,000 already spent. The city has the foundation continue work on the project, even as Westside Alder Smith circulates a petition for a new referendum to kill the Monona Basin Plan and force the city to hire a local architect to design a project to replace the surface parking lots bounded by Mifflin, Broom, Johnson, and Henry Streets. In other news, on the 14th, radical attorney William Kunstler tells about 150 people at a gathering at the Memorial Union that America, quote, has only surface freedom and is on the verge of a new McCarthyism. On the 17th, after another dismal losing season drives the average game attendance in the 76,000-seat Camp Randall down to 52,000, and the alumni to open anger, President Fred Harvey Harrington can't protect football coach Milt Brune any longer, and the Badgers' most successful football coach of the century submits his resignation to the athletic board chairman, Professor Frank Remington. He then accepts appointment as Ivy Williamson's assistant athletic director. Harrington, Remington, and Brune all deny media reports that Brune was fired, each insisting the difficult decision was the coach's alone. Bruins boys make sure he goes out a winner, ending the season two days later with a come-from-behind upset victory over his alma mater, Minnesota. Then the team carries their coach off the field on their shoulders, closing his 11-year career. On the 20th, the Silas U. Pinney Library, named for the former mayor and state Supreme Court justice who founded the Madison Library System in 1874, opens in the C&P Plaza on Cottage Grove Road, an area far outside the city during Penny's administration. The month marks a milestone in city transportation as the first phase of the $15 million University Avenue Expressway opens. West Johnson Street is now four lanes eastbound, with University Avenue four lanes one way westbound from Broom Street to Breeze Terrace with an eastbound bus lane on the south side of the street. Mayor Feske calls the wrong way bus lane, separated by a low cement divider, an experiment that, quote, may prove useful elsewhere if successful here. All does not go entirely smoothly at first. Motorists illegally use the bus lane, and the lack of traffic lights makes it hard for pedestrians to cross. City traffic engineers hope the installation of lights on Johnson Street at Randall Avenue and Mill Street in mid-December will solve pedestrians' problems. And it's quite a month for song and dance. Alumni thrill to a homecoming concert starring Tony Bennett and Woody Herman, while future alumni dance to Tommy James and the Shondells. Later in the month, Star-O-Rama brings the year's most successful groups, the Association, the Left Bank, and the new vaudeville band to the Capitol, followed a week later by the Lovin' Spoonful at the Orpheum. There is even a return engagement by Tommy James at the Youth Building at the Dane County Fairgrounds. 
and the legendary Martha Graham Dance Company exhilarates and exhausts a capacity Union Theater audience with a 66-year-old Graham herself dancing the title role in Judith. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s for your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that's it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. I'll ask the listeners out there one more time, if you're interested in working on the show, we'd love to have you down here on this side of the microphone. You don't have to have had experience. We need general reporters, or if you've got a specialty, a special area of knowledge you'd like to share with the community, we'd love to have you down here. You can give us a call at 256-2001 during business hours and talk to the... Uh, uh, the volunteer coordinator. That's who you should talk to. Your reporter this evening was Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Stu Levitan. Chuck Kateman engineered tonight's broadcast, and Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.